Welcome back, everyone, and um, welcome back to the DSAI Summer School Reflective Podcast with myself, Kira Finnegan. And as ever, I am joined by co-convener of the DSAI Climate and Development Study Group. Jara, would you like to say hello to everyone? Hi, everybody. And we are delighted to be joined today by Dr. Noelle Higgins from um, Maynooth University. Noelle delivered a um, session on cultural heritage and climate change at the DSEI Summer School. And Noelle is delighted to be here with her two PhD supervisees, aren't you, Noelle? <laughs> oh, I am so delighted. You would not believe how delighted I am. <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really laughed when when you said Noelle is delighted to be here, and I did think, oh, is she? <laughs> this is like a kidnap situation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like this is what you're going to. Say, yeah. <laughs> I am delighted to be here. It was actually very interesting to be able to talk on this topic at the summer school. So it's always good to um, kind of develop some of the thoughts that um, I came up with and talked about um, at the summer school. So yes, Kira, I am delighted to be here. That's great because we're delighted to have you. Um, yeah, in case that didn't come across, Noel is both <laughs> myself and Jerry's PhD supervisor. So yes, we have um, kidnapped her and crowded her into doing the. <laughs> summer school as well as this podcast but definitely from I know the student feedback that you and I had there was so much interest in your session and like I think it really made people think about cultural heritage in a different way or think about the effects of climate change in a different way which is always really good and really interesting so it was really really some a lot of positive feedback was given to us on your yeah. session specifically so I think this is going to be a really interesting episode to be able to reflect on some of the topics you discussed as well as kind of I suppose project forward Yes. And I mean, the like at, at the end of your session, I don't know if you were able to see it or not, but like even the comments that came through, there was just so many of them at that mm-hmm. one. But there were so many that were even just, thanks, this was so interesting. And, you know, <laughs> what you'll hear when if you get the chance and time to listen to the student episode of the podcast, like one of the students actually said that after your session, it opened up an idea for further research for PhD research that she never would have thought these two worlds could have matched before that gave her such great ideas to think about so it really was a really well received one and I think with climate change I think we often think oh it's about you know erosion or it's about things getting warmer we don't Mm -hmm. actually think there's there's cultural aspects that can be destroyed very realistically and are very vulnerable too. Yeah, I suppose climate change just affects everything and every person or it has the potential to anyway and I think when you look at cultural heritage, it, it, you might think, oh, what's that got to do with climate change? But heritage is so much part of an individual's identity. And if that's impacted negatively in any way, you can just see you know, how detrimental that could be to all of society, not just individuals, but complete societies as well. So I do think that there are a lot of crossovers between the two areas. And I I really do hope that, you know, people who are working in these fields find the synergies between them, because I think there are synergies there. And I think by looking at the overlap that perhaps some solutions can be found um, in respect of, you know, finding a better legal framework to protect um, from, from climate change. And I suppose, um, I don't know, did you mention there, here I am from the Department of Law. <laughs> so this is all from a legal perspective. Obviously, there are other disciplines involved. 
but I am very much a lawyer and looking at it from that perspective and looking at how the legal framework can be used and can be improved um, in respect of both cultural heritage and, and climate change. Perfect. Yeah, so sorry. I think I actually was just thinking about that. I'm like, did I say Department of Law? I'm yeah. Like, not the intro. Are you ashamed, Kira? <laughs> My chair runs point on the intro, but it's fine. Um, so I suppose we'll start with like, you know, as you said, how can cultural heritage be affected by climate change or like, I suppose just giving examples of some of the ways I know it like can massively be affected that's a very broad question do you know just before just before you answer it's so funny like I'm I know that we're doing an episode here that's meant to be for I keep forgetting that that's what we're doing because when you're talking about these things I get lost in thinking about it and I'm just like that is really interesting and I'm like oh wait no we're back okay sorry (laughs) you're alive if if I'm on these delays it's because I'm I'm just getting lost in thoughts sorry it's all right I'm used to you I'm used to you (laughs) okay so to answer here's the question firstly I suppose what I talked about in the summer school and what I, I think needs to be talked about first is the distinction between two categories of heritage and um, one is tangible cultural heritage and then the other is intangible cultural heritage and within the tangible cultural heritage you can subdivide into you know the built environment or natural heritage and, and things like that but you know just the difference between them is very important because they they are regulated by two different legal frameworks so you have um cultural heritage or tangible cultural heritage which is regulated by the world heritage convention and then you have intangible cultural heritage and examples of that would be, um, you know, um, folklore or types of different practices, cultural practices, the performing arts, um, things that, you know, knowledge of Indigenous peoples in relation to nature and the universe and traditional craftsmanship, those types of things would be intangible. The tangible would be both the built environment, so, you know, the lovely castles that we have all around, dotted around the country here, but they would also be very famous buildings, across various different countries like the Taj Mahal for example but as well as that uh, tangible cultural heritage could also be kind of a natural environment as well so you could have things like Uluru um, in the country that we now call Australia for example um, but Uluru is a very sacred site to the indigenous peoples of Australia so you, you need to, to, to look at it that heritage is almost everything you know that you can think of. Um, so a lot of people, when you're talking about heritage, they kind of just kind of say, well, that's you know that posh building up there that was built, you know, by people with lots of money, or this fancy house that was built. But our understanding of heritage and what heritage is has really kind of developed over the years, and we now have kind of a broad understanding of what heritage is. So because of that, uh, climate change can impact on different types of heritage in various different ways. But just to give you some examples, if you look at natural heritage, for example, um, impacts on that could include the melting of glaciers, which is caused by glo- global warming, warming even, as well as the coral bleaching and the potential extinction of coral reefs. And this you know, was hugely important recently, just during the summer, a couple of weeks ago, in relation to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is on the World Heritage List, which is classified as a site um, and recognized as a World Heritage property. But um, you know, because of, of the difficulties caused by climate change, they were saying, well, you know, should it still be on this list? Or, or you know, is it in danger now? Um, uh, because of increased water temperatures as a result of um, climate change. 
as well as that buildings of cultural value are also at risk from things like extreme weather conditioning so so weathering um, and rising sea levels as well so some properties that may you know a number of years ago been inland are now kind of at the edge of the sea and they're being weathered and exposed to a lot of difficulty and in, in being damaged that way Archaeological sites can also be at risk from the increase in soil temperature um, and changes in sediment moisture as well. So an awful lot of things that, you know, I don't really have a knowledge of as, as a lawyer, but archaeologists or scientists would be able to, you know, give you a precise um, explanation as to how all of these things impact on our built environment, on our natural environment and on our cultural environment. But I will also point out, and this is something that I don't think has been as prominent in the discussion to date is the impact of climate change on, on, on society. Um, so the climate change can have a society impact too. So for example, if you have communities of people living in a particular place um, who are using particular crops and that their livelihood is based on selling those crops, if those crops are certainly exposed to climate change, those crops no longer are um, can be used as food. They can no longer be used to trade, to get money, um, to actually help employ the people um, in, the, in that particular area. That society, that community may completely disperse. They have to go to cities, other places to find work, um, other types of eating, for example, like couscous is, is one of the things that, that's actually on the intangible cultural heritage list. Um, you know, so they may have to find different ways of, of eating and eating and our culture and food is such an important part of who we are and how we identify ourselves. And it, it, you know, with this a habit, it's how we celebrate, it's how we just live our daily lives. But if that community has to disperse, leave, well then, that is a huge societal impact. So a, a community may have to change the way they live, the way they work, um, the way they worship, for example, if they worship in a particular place, especially indigenous peoples, because they have such an important connection to the environment in which they live, such an important kind of spiritual relationship with the land of which they live. Um, so they may have to abandon this environment completely. So if you Want an example of this? I suppose if you look at the indigenous peoples in the Arctic, um, or in low-lying island states, particularly, um, they are disproportionately affected by climate change and face um, serious damage with regard to the loss of traditional lands. And given the strong links between um, the land and nature and the social and cultural identity, as well as the spirituality of indigenous peoples, this loss this loss puts transmission of culture to the next generation at risk as well. So the loss is nearly immeasurable in some ways because you don't know how many generations it's going to be, it's going to impact on. Um, and will that community ever rebuild? Um, and will it ever kind of be the same again? So I don't think the impact on intangible cultural heritage has got as much press or as much media as the impact on, on um, on, on world heritage sites, because you know, if a world heritage site is damaged, you can actually see that. You know, it's it's very very visible if something is weathered. So, for example, you know, the, the impact of the weather on Skellig Vickil in Ireland, which is a world heritage site. You know, you can see that. It's obvious. It's it's there. Everybody can see it's been weathered. But if you're looking at the impact in relation to intangible cultural heritage, you can't see that the traditions that have not been passed down are the language that is no longer spoken because the community no longer exists because they were dependent on a certain um, 
intangible cultural heritage aspect. So I suppose that's just to kind of give you a, a bit of a brief overview of how climate change can impact in various different ways on both tangible and intangible cultural heritage. I mean, that was almost a perfect segue because the next question may, I don't know, it may seem maybe silly to, to kind of ask this because you kind of covered it a little bit, but more so it's probably an opinion question rather than yeah. a factor. But do you think then tangible or intangible cultural heritage is more at risk? And I suppose I, I mean that in the sense that, you know, tangible, you say you can see and it's more, it's more obvious and that might have greater risks, but then does intangible problems or you know kind of attacks on intangible cultural heritage from climate change is that nearly more dangerous because it's so invisible and underrepresented or, or what do you think yeah it's hard to i suppose it, it's hard to compare because there is so yeah. very very different types of entities um but i do think that you know if, if you damage a building that can also have an impact on the community as well. For example, how they it might be a religious building and that might impact on the on the way they worship and, and that might have a, an impact on that community who may disperse as well. But intangible cultural heritage, I mean, if it results in the loss of a language, for example, which is a transmitter of identity, it can have such an impact on the identity of a group. Um, it can be incredibly, incredibly you know, dangerous that way. I will say that um, under the World Heritage Convention, which is a tangible cultural heritage, there is a list of um, endangered properties. You know, I mentioned that just earlier in relation to the Great Barrier Reef. And some properties are put on this and, and they get extra effort in relation to the conservation and the management of the sites. At the moment, uh, in relation to the intangible cultural heritage convention, it also kind of has a list a list of intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent, urgent safeguarding. That's the name of the list. It's a bit of a mouthful there, but that, that's what it's actually called. But there has been nothing included on that list yet that is, is seen to be in need of safeguarding as a result of climate change. Now, I'm not saying that's because in climate change has an impact on I'm saying that maybe perhaps just the international community have not seen that link yet because it is more difficult to prove, you know, how do you prove something really that, you know, that the loss of a language was because of X, Y, or Z, you know what I mean? There could yeah. be so many things impacting on it. But I do think that this is coming into the consciousness of the international community an awful lot more, this, this impact and this relationship between the community, the environment and, and culture. Um, so recently, just June and July of, of this year, um, just, currently kind of ongoing, but um, the World Heritage Committee, which is the body which oversees the implementation of the World Heritage Convention. This, is, this body is currently updating what's called the world, or sorry, the, the policy document on the impacts of climate change on world heritage properties. So this was adopted in 2007. Um, so the World Heritage Committee first began dealing with climate change back in 2005. It came to their attention in 2005. So when the World Heritage Convention was set up back in 1972, climate change wasn't you know, thought about, it wasn't included in the convention, it wasn't dealt with at all. So it wasn't until 2005 that states began to go to the World Heritage Committee and say, look, there is this thing that's impacting on our heritage sites and we need you to take note of it. So from that time onwards, the World Heritage Committee has taken undertaken a number of initiatives to try to deal with the impact of climate change on world heritage sites. And one of the main ones is this 2007 policy document. 
and this has been updated over the years but we now have since just this kind of last month and this month a new draft of this policy which is incredibly important so it just came before the world heritage committee um, in June and July of 2021. Um, and there's a draft updated policy. And if you look at that draft updated policy, I do think that a lot of these issues that I'm bringing up in relation to intangible cultural heritage, in relation to nature, in relation to the environment, in relation to a more holistic approach to looking at um, nature and climate is included. And one very important aspect that I'm really happy with in the new draft policy is the fact that they keep on underlining the importance of indigenous or traditional knowledge and expertise in the protection of heritage sites, which is hugely, hugely important because currently the way the World Heritage Convention works is that there's no explicit way that indigenous peoples can have a say in how sites which are located on their land can be um, protected or uh, how, how they should be managed or how they should be conserved. There's no explicit way. Now, I'm not saying that World Heritage Sites don't benefit from Indigenous expertise in certain places around the world, they certainly do, but there's no explicit committee um, with, of Indigenous expertise. There was a, um, a suggestion that this be done, a recommendation that this be set up a number of years ago, but it fell foul of sovereignty politics and things like that and never actually happened but this new draft policy document is incredibly important in relation to that it talks about the interconnectedness of nature and culture it looks at the vulnerability of intangible heritage so it really focuses on that um, but it looks specifically and mentions on a number of occasions the importance of traditional knowledge with regard to mitigation and adaptation in terms of climate change. Um, so hopefully that draft policy will be a great improvement on what went before it. And hopefully we will see a more holistic approach. Um, and I do think a more kind of um, a more synergy with other areas of of study areas of research it's not just law anymore it's the environment it's nature it's indigenous study it's anthropology I do think that 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 is definitely um more evident in this new draft uh, policy which is currently being you know um looked at by the World Heritage Committee and the state's parties to the World Heritage Convention Sorry, I think I went off on a bit of a tangent no, there at no, the end. <laughs> no, you didn't at all. And I, again, took a millisecond there to, for, to remember that I had asked a question because <laughs> I'm there jotting down notes as I'm going because it's just so interesting. And it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that at the end there because, you know, the keynote address from the summer school was all about transdisciplinarity and how, you know, yeah. to, to further understanding and knowledges and, you know, single disciplinary approaches to um our societal issues are not enough anymore no, and that, that no the answers all. have to be in that and I think that's really um really really interesting to see and you know even again from the student feedback that we had you know and even talking to those three students their backgrounds were all so different the, the subjects and the courses and the programs that they did was are so different yet they're all bridged together by this one topic which is which is mm. really really interesting um to me and I think it's it's really exciting to see that kind of happen and you well know. you know you know the, the more you know the more you know you don't know anything I think you know yes. what I mean? <laughs> uh, the more you learn the less you know I think uh, is the way about it so when I'm reading about climate change I um have no knowledge of science <laughs> you know for for 
that I need to know and, and I, I do need to know it in to be able to understand the impact of um, climate change on, on different sites and the way it does impact in different ways. So I've no proper kind of educated understanding of that. I can say it happens because I believe the research that's out there, but that research needs to be synergized with other research on the legal framework or on, you know, sociologists or on uh, relation to sociology or anthropology in order to fully be able to understand the impacts because you know a sociologist or an anthropologist would be able to look at the impact on societies whereas a scientist or an archaeologist would be able to look at the impact on sites and it's in between those two that you actually hopefully will come up with better conclusions or a better approach to try to deal with that and I think in that example I left out lawyers altogether no we, can, we can't do that <laughs> we need the lawyers involved some way uh, <laughs> so the lawyers should be should be queens and kings of, of all of all that um, and they should be in charge <laughs> I know but I, I do think we definitely just, need the synergy between all of the, the different types of disciplines I was just thinking Kira now we need to launch a line of merch now for the podcast and we need to <laughs> copyright those phrases that Noelle just said <laughs> because they'll make it the more you know the more you know you don't know and I I like the lawyers are the queens and kings <laughs> they're, they're two t-shirts and mugs that I, I i want in my life hashtag <laughs> yeah queen thank you thank you um i suppose like following on from that and just kind of um this idea of like as you said transdisciplinarity that um professor honor fagan brought up but also the idea of kind of collaboration do you think there's too much pressure alone on unesco and the world heritage committee to kind of facilitate this protection of cultural heritage from climate change or do you think there should be in the international legal framework um and international institutions there should be more approaches or routes to protecting or more collaboration from other institutions with UNESCO and the World Heritage Committee? Like, do we have more ways to approach this from an international law perspective? Um, I, I definitely think that the World Heritage Committee has acknowledged the fact that um, states parties should participate in the climate change discussion and should actually, you know, go and be party to the or, or attend or participate in the conference of the parties to the UNF triple C. So they have actually stated this, um, you know, explicitly. And so they have acknowledged the fact that they have expertise in heritage. Other bodies within the UN system have expertise in climate um, and climate change and climate impact. So they have recognized that definitely um, in their uh, in you know their decision making and, and telling and encouraging states parties go participate in this because you will see the overlap. As well as that, in the new draft that I've just talked about there um, that adopted this year, they say it's very important to understand the synergy with the latest conventions, is how they, they kind of talk about it. So they are actually very much aware that there are other international legal instruments out there that can be utilized or can be tapped for potentially improving the um, protection of heritage sites. Um, so there is a whole body of law on cultural rights. And to be honest, it, it developed and our cultural heritage law developed, I would say quite separately from the cultural rights development. Um, but I do think over time that there have been overlaps. But in the World Heritage Convention of 1972, there's no reference to cultural rights whatsoever. It's not a thing that, that, that was recognized. But in more modern and more recently adopted um, instruments, 
in relation to the destruction, the intentional destruction of cultural heritage, um, you will find this language of cultural rights and this human rights language infused in these newer instruments. Um, I do think it's important because, as I said before, people often, when you talk, start talking about heritage, they don't really understand that you're also talking about people. Um, so when you're talking about heritage and you're saying, you know, people might think, oh, you want to spend all this money, all this effort to protect this old building. That's not it, really. It's, it's about the person. You know, it's about individuals. It's about our society as well. It's about our identity. It's about who we are. It's about our humanity. And I do think that infusing cultural rights language into our world heritage discourse can really make the the discussion more alive and more alive and more relevant to individuals um, and I do think that this is definitely recognized by the World Heritage Committee um, and they have been kind of recommending this approach and looking at synergies and saying you know there are other options there there are other options available and they are very much open to using them in cooperation with various different other bodies look the more law the better is my approach <laughs> you know it always will be um because i do think that if you can't attack a problem from one international legal instrument and you know you may find an approach in another in international legal instrument so i do think that you know if you look at them in a complementary holistic way that it is always going to give you a better level of protection. Thank you, no, that was, that's really interesting. I suppose just to kind of sum up, um, it's probably a little bit of a selfish question. Um, and also I know it was one that was expressed by one of the students that was in attendance too. So if, if somebody listening out there uh, wanted to pursue this line of research, um, you know, whether that be at postgraduate level, PhD level, post-PhD, you know, to try and start, you know, this kind of gap in the research that you're talking about, you know, how, what would your advice be? Where, where should one maybe start? Oh, it's an exciting time. It's a very exciting time to be looking at it because of this draft policy. So it's a perfect time to be actually looking at this. And um, I really do think that um, somebody from a, a, a trans or disciplinary background is so much better equipped to deal with this than, than, um, people who are coming at it directly from law or from sociology or from science, you know, because I do think that a more holistic approach to it is, is definitely needed. Um, for me, there are a number of different gaps um, that I find particularly interesting, and one of them is definitely in relation to Indigenous peoples. Thankfully, finally, we have the new policy document which recognises traditional knowledge and the importance of it. The amount of problems that can be caused by using purely Western expertise in the conservation and management of sites and indigenous lands is, is crazy. You know what I mean? You do need to have indigenous expertise. Indigenous expertise is so valid and so important in so many different areas. And, you know, indigenous peoples and there is such sacred relationship to the land um which they have conserved and managed in such a peaceful way for so many centuries if we turn our back on that knowledge and expertise i mean we're, we're crazy um so i think that looking at that the the interplay between western and indigenous knowledge and expertise in relation to management and conservation is a very important um aspect of study that definitely needs more attention um, but also, um, I do think that intangible cultural heritage needs a lot more um, research. 
Um, I do think that the impact of the loss of, oh, you know, traditions or language um, because of an impact um, from the um, from 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 climate should be looked at in a lot more depth because I think we actually it's it's untold the damage that has been done. We just haven't studied it enough. We don't exactly know how much damage and how far reaching the ramifications are. Um, so definitely more research needs to be done on that in relation to intangible cultural heritage. But, you know, so they're just kind of two, two areas that I think are in need of more research. The other one, some research has been done on it, but it's, it's the um, value added of looking at culture or world heritage from a cultural rights perspective or from a human rights perspective. Um, I think, again, more work can definitely be done on that. That is kind of some work has been done on that, but I, I do think additional work could definitely be done on that. So how would you go about doing that? Well, there are some gaps. You just have to identify the gap in the research. Go and talk to somebody in a university and say that this is, this is you know, what you want to look at. But there's so much good information out there from organizations such as UNESCO, um, but also at your local level, because you know, it's normally the local people that know an awful lot more about the environment, about the heritage, about their surroundings than an international organization has, you know what I mean? So I think that that's very, very important to not dismiss the local. And, and obviously the, the international is very, very important, you know, to have that legal framework or whatever, but for getting the knowledge, you know, about a particular place, you're going to get the best knowledge of that from uh, um, the locals. So I think that that's very important thing to keep in mind as well. I want to do all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's start tomorrow. <laughs> as you were saying, I was like, I could do that. I could do that. I could do, not me casually stealing your research. I just want to do no. another, I just want to do another three PhDs. Because um, it really is, it's, it's just so interesting. And I mean, I think one of the things that we can say about climate change is at least the world, like we're starting to, to realize that it has to be preemptive now. We have to start looking at the danger. Because I think we've relied in terms of climate change. I think the world has heavily relied on, you know, it, until it's been too late to save something. It's, yeah. it's when we see it, we're now, I think this idea of, you know, kind of preempting it and conserving it and, and preserving yeah. it is, is just so interesting and so important. Um. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I in the draft uh, policy, which I keep on talking about, but I, I, it, it emphasised the importance of monitoring. So if you're monitoring the impact on climate change regularly, you'll see when the tipping point comes, or you'll see before the tipping point, hopefully, where you can have a mitigation and adaptation strategies, you know, um, there in place, which would hopefully um, stop the loss of the heritage, which is what, what you're trying to do, you know, um, so I think the monitoring aspect of it is, is incredibly important. And here also, like, science is very important, but also, you know, local traditional knowledge is very important. Yeah. Local people will see something, you know, that a scientist who has no knowledge of the location may not think is significant, but a local person will or again, the indigenous expertise would be invaluable in those situations as well. Just yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Um, and it's terrible because it is sad in many ways. And it's almost everything I do is sad. <laughs> so you know, you it's know. almost to say it's so sad, but so interesting. Like it, it really is. And it just 
isn't it funny because sometimes you just want to you know kind of knock people's heads together like this is kind of just straightforward come on just do it I know it's not that simple but you know I think that was one of the things that your session um on cultural heritage and climate change I think implanted in lots of people's minds was just these questions to have these questions um you know to be like, what well, what is there to protect this or what can be done to protect this um mm. you know I thought it was it was it was really interesting so and so thank you first of all for your session and for your time at the summer school my pleasure but, all, but also for joining us today um I know that you are very very busy um and overwhelmed with PhD you know but we are too so once again today we're joined with um, Dr. Noel Higgins, who's an Associate Professor of International Law at the Maynooth University Department of Law. Um, I say international law, I don't know if you prefer international justice, I always use them interchangeably, so it just kind of depends. Yeah. Um, I think if I'm trying to be interdisciplinary, justice is always better because, yeah. you know, and, and you know, you can have a law which isn't just, which you don't like. That's you very true, I mean? actually. So the yeah. aim is justice, the aim is not law, so equity that's mm, yeah you know. that's very nice um so thank you very much and as so ever, my pleasure th- and thank you for listening everybody bye, bye. thank you